You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. I'm talking to Scott Whithoft, who works as an educator, designer, and author. Drawing from his past practice of forensic structural engineering, wow, he incorporates that expertise with current pursuits in space, furniture, and product design. Teaching and speaking widely, widely, he is the author uh, co-author of Making Space, a tool for creating collaborative environments. His work has been featured in the Design Museum and publications such as Fast Company, Architecture and Urbanism, and Metropolis. He is designer and author from the Stanford D School Guide series, and his new book is called This is a Prototype, The Curious Craft of Exploring New Ideas. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a Way. This is getting to yes and. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Scott Widhoff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's super cool to be here. In the introduction to your book, you have an unusual, but I think it's a very insightful way that you talk about a prototype. You write, quote, it's a modest tool for the lofty goal of testing the future, end quote. Say more about that. Because <laughs> that, uh, that's, that's a pretty killer sentence. You know that, right? That's why you threw in the introduction. I, yeah, I was pretty happy how that one turned out, actually. <laughs> it is uh, hard to say things well. <laughs> and some of us we try we try we try we try um yeah i connected with that uh i connected with the concept of testing the future or uh exploring the unknown mm-hmm. by way of prototypes as a tool um i think there's a, a often a notion of when you come up with an idea or when an idea strikes you you've got it like oh what is this that it suggests uh, a future answer or a possibility to something maybe that's even in your past. And you're saying, oh, I've resolved this. I've got the answer. Um, when in reality, you might be 
sort of dancing around a future, or you might be, um, say, probing at something that you haven't fully understood or haven't fully resolved. And I think the the notion of a prototype as um, a conduit for your curiosity or something that helps you explore beyond where you are right now uh, mm-hmm. and to try some things out, to audition some possibilities, as opposed to having to have necessarily arrived at an answer before you, right. in some cases, even know what you're trying to explore, what you're trying to answer, uh, what that yeah. question is. No, no, no. I mean, for those of us that are in the business of making something out of nothing, which is what we do here at Second City and certainly what you do, um, I think it is not only an act, a, a sort of constant, constant sense of reinvention. I also feel like we can, we're never going to be done finding different ways to talk about, to try to explain it to other people because inherently the human brain just goes to, well, it's ABC, isn't it? And it's like, it's not linear and it's rife with failure. And, uh, society tells us all these, these things that we should be doing to, to be our most creative selves, which also are not really part of the, the mess that is making something new. I love that you, I mean, the context that you shared, Second City. Yeah. There's something to that, which is it's going to happen again. Like you're going to yes. come back tomorrow and you're going to revisit this, this process, this sequence, this mindset, this engagement. It is going to happen again. This is not a one time thing. It's, no. you know, falling in love with ice cream and, and wanting to have it the next day and say like, Ooh, I want to explore more. I don't know. I was go back to food items, but there's, there's, uh, the, the context of prototyping is something that is mm, replicable, familiar, re-engageable, as opposed to, oh, I got it right that one time, and that's it. You know, yeah. mic yeah. drop done. I'm never coming back on the stage again. That was the best joke I've ever told. No, I think I'm done. I, I don't want. I don't want to try anymore. That's not how it works. Not at all. I'm curious. Do you know how Second City creates its shows? I have some hints. I'd love to hear from you how how it goes, how, how the sausage gets made, so okay. to speak. So, um, so we go into rehearsal and we, we we're never closed. So basically, we have a show that's running. Uh, when we go into rehearsal for a new show, we're still running that that show. That's two a two act show. And there's a third act that's free. Uh, where we improvise. And when we're not writing a show, we're just improvising games, guests come up, all that sort of thing. But when we're writing a show, that is where we're testing out new material. And basically, it's about a 10 to 12 week process. And once we have material that's really working Mm -hmm. in the third act, we take something out in the show, put that in. So it's slowly, it prototypes uh, over this this period. So it's, it's literally what you're talking about in terms of testing in front of an audience. And a lot of that stuff does not work. Um, and then sometimes when you put it in the, you know, a scripted thing, something doesn't work there. So you have to move it in the running order. So it's this constant sort of play that, that your cast is doing with your director, who's outside the ensemble, who's making the decision about where these pieces go. Ah, I love it. Thank you for sharing that, that mm-hmm. sequence. It really connects with uh, an interview. I was just recently watching, or I guess listening to, uh, featuring Ricky Gervais, who okay. was talking about his his act and and structuring his material. And part of that conversation, I forget who he was talking to, but anyway, part of that conversation um, connected back to a question that someone asked of him, like, are you ever worried a, a joke isn't going to work? Or are you ever afraid the audience is going to 
sort of turn on you or, 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 you know, reject you. And his take or his response, I should say, was no, uh, by the time I'm on stage doing this, I've auditioned this so many times that I know exactly how it's going to work, you know, and there's some, some yeah. tweaks and some great opportunities, which I think is, is part of the, the essence of how, a um, a tried and true performer or someone who's, who's sort of rising to the moment is saying, ah, that's, I've got a little intervention right now, but yeah. overall you're like, yeah, this is dialed. This is not the first time this is no. showing up in front of a, you know, a, a stadium arena. Uh, it's not the first time on stage, first time telling a joke. Um, it, so in any case, the, the process that you just described, uh, and the sequence he was describing, they really align in this. Yeah. I'm constantly iterating uh-huh. to yield a product, so to speak, for the moment or some content for the moment. And then you can sort of, you know, manipulate or, or, or deviate when something unique really does come along in that, in that moment. And one of the things that you say in the book, which, which is just, uh, we're keenly aware of is that it takes practice to create prototypes that you say fail well. Um, and I think there's two elements to this, right? There is, there's practice. And I think we are talking about a daily practice, whether you're working on the thing or not, you are, you know, it's that one idea. It's, it's, it's a, what, what is it? Bob Sutton says something around, it's like 2000 ideas to get to the yeah. one good one, something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so there's that. And then there's the failing well. And I want to explore that a little bit because we're not saying like you, I mean, you must fail in the sense that you will fail. We're not saying that you're aiming for failure. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, failure has. I could maybe it's like a, a, a maybe failure is the ultimate product of marketing as a term in that it is so sticky as yeah. a binary uh, definition, right, wrong, disaster, perfection. And in a different context, if, if you actually sort of shift your intent from the get go and say, you know what, I am a okay right now, not pretending that I have to have the answer, like the one thing in my hands right now, or, or the, the one concept I'm absolutely playing around with this content content and seeing what works or, or what doesn't, or, or what I didn't know. Um, and that I, I would offer up that's <laughs> right now that's in the big umbrella of, Oh, I learned from a failure. You're like, yeah, you did totally learn from a failure. That's a different failure than saying like, we just, tooled up a manufacturing line to make, I don't know, right-handed gloves for an entirely left-handed culture, but we never really asked ahead of time. We just thought, no, it'll probably work. That's uh, that's a failure as opposed to saying, I'm going to try some stuff. I know it's not going to work. And that's intentional right now. What I want to do is find out why it doesn't work or or rather also what does work uh, about it. It's part of a, an intentional process. Yeah, and and you've used the word a couple of times, and I think it's important to double click on it. Is intention, hmm. you know, that that is a, like context <laughs> in, in a world that is lacking all nuance, all context, and 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 literally not paying heed to the importance of intention that 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 matters. Um, I know that in in our work, especially in, in comedy writ large, you know, part of the popular conversation was to take Dave Chappelle is you know like. Is he a brilliant comedian? Absolutely. He's, he's brilliant at what he does. Um, do his intentions matter? To me, they do. They, they absolutely do because I think, I think there's ethics inside, inside comedy. And so 
that's for my world. I'm curious about your your world when you apply that sort of intention. What 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 you're thinking about? In the in some cases around product design, mm-hmm. like phys- physical product widgets stuff. Um, I think there's a a real. I don't think it's overstating it to say danger, I, it, and it's disappointing at that. There's an idea that a product is always evolving, or um, that it never really needs to be done. And as a result, if you make a bad version of it, oh, that's okay. We'll fix it. There'll be a new model that comes out. Mm-hmm. In the in the sometimes that's like planned obsolescence, where it's like, yeah, it's going to fail, and the consumer will buy another one next month, year, mm-hmm. decade, whatever. Um, I think that is really disappointing. <laughs> to me, that's really disappointing, and it shows up very frequently in um software software releases where you're like mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't really matter if it works right now what's more important to us is that we have a new product to uh market to announce its release every quarter every other quarter uh our, our brand is stale right now so in lieu of actually spending the time funding research funding product meaningfully uh it's more important that we're just in front of somebody quick uh because otherwise we're we're toast um I, th- that uh, I think that connects back to the the sort of ethics thread that you brought up yeah. regarding Dave Chappelle. Well, any comedian really. Um, that there is something about if you said, "Well, everything is a prototype," and use that as a justification for things don't really need to be right from the right. get go. I I think that's um, um, an unfortunate manipulation of being curious as a as a baseline um learning from iteration as a baseline it's a it's a get out of jail free card so to speak borrowing from monopoly um and saying like ah i actually don't have to be intentional i don't i don't really have to do my best i just gotta write it off as nothing's perfect and we'll you know we'll, we'll see you next fall with a new version that i i think that's lazy garbage thinking um, <laughs> I was talking to my wife about something similar. She's teaching this class and she got in this argument, not an argument, but she <laughs> a conversation with a student and a student essentially says, I don't care what the audience thinks or feels. And she's like, well, that's not how we do it here. I mean, that, that can be your choice. Um, I've got a funny story about that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the late great Del Close is sort of a God of, of improv uh, was starring in a Goodman Theater production of Merchant of Venice, directed by the renowned opera stage director Peter Sellers. Um, and Adam McKay, the you know, great mm-hmm. filmmaker mm-hmm. and producer, he, he and our friends, we went to this production with my wife. And um, Sellers did things. It was it was terrible. It was like six hours long. <laughs> uh, the sound was purposely distorted. The actors had their backs to the audience, um, and. Uh, we go up and we're, you know, you lie. If you're in theater, you're like, Hey, that was great. That was wonderful. And we're talking to Dell and, and, and the director, Peter Sellers is there. And this man comes up and goes, uh, Mr. Sellers. Uh, and he just holds up his middle finger. He goes, now we're even <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you need to care about like bathroom breaks. You need to care about the, what the thing you're giving the audience and, and, I mean, one of the reasons we love our Apple phones is, is that the design is so beautiful and so intuitive and so cool. Like that, that's, you know, 
that plays a part, I think, in, in everything you do, which again is an intention. Oh, I love that. That's that would have been such a great moment to, uh, was, oh, to film I, I just that little like thing. Uh. Cataloging that for the future. All right. You have a section <laughs> called making with a mindset and you talk about three mindsets. Uh, number one, make do by using nothing more than is needed Two, make it fake, but do it for real. Three, make it an experience always. I love that. And I, I have a feeling that that also is not necessarily linear. That those things are <laughs> right when you're. I think it's they're like a Taoistic thing that you need to have at all mind. Th- those three things sort of go- going in your mind at all times. Yeah, and they uh, they're I don't know they're almost like complementary in a way where you, where if you said I'm always gonna if I ever have a question I'm always gonna create an experience to explore that question like I'm gonna manifest my curiosity through an experience that involves someone else that very quickly might flip into okay. What do I have in my pockets? What's around me? What can I use? Uh, who's around me? Who can I ask or who can I, you know, invite into this, this experience? Whereas you could flip that also and say, you know what? I'm, uh, always going to try to make something out of a cardboard box and literally say, okay, these are my bound materials or I'm, I'm making do with what I have. This, this notion of sort of efficiency with resources. That's one way to think about it. Um, and the make it, the make it, the make it fake, but do it for real is, this is something that pops up with students all the time too, um, which I, it's a little bit of a cul-de-sac side road there, but in any case, it's, it's, um, you know, when in doubt or, um, when you're overly constrained with time, materials, audience, whatever, uh, there is an aspect or, or an essence of, what you're trying to explore that you could simulate or you, you could emulate and learn from, yeah. uh, in the same way of, um, I don't know if you're asking, if you're trying to understand how people make decisions online, say for a new banking app or what have you. Awesome. Right now, what you might be trying to explore is literally how does someone make any decision? Yeah. Cool. Create an experience where someone has to select between, I don't know, two, three of anything uh, in order to understand maybe what's the next step you want to have in a conversation with someone about their value structure and, and how they make decisions or what choices stand out to them. Why do certain things matter at different moments? That's something that you unfortunately could, as a designer or someone who wants to come up with the answer, it's not always a designer, you could push that off. Uh, a long time before you you even get to do I really understand what it means for people to be making decisions ultimately i'm I'm delivering a decision making product or experience or service or whatever the the quicker you can get into the realness of some sub nuances or or even some some big categories, but they don't yet need to be fully fleshed out um, yeah that's something that um, unfortunately, students, designers, anyone, um, might not instinctively think of first say like, you know what I, I can, there's something I can create right now that would be a, a, an emotionally based and valid experience someone could have that would inform whatever next steps I might take as kind of the shepherd of an idea, um, that I don't need to involve 
or, or have fully, I guess, manifested or fleshed out right now. So those those three ingredients, yeah, I think as as you pointed out, they're they can show up in a different sequence, but it very quickly, I say they very quickly um, reference each other <laughs> when you think yeah. about. I'm going to ask someone something. I want. I want to try a like a an emotionally charged moment. What are the ingredients I need to create that? And I mean, what's the? I'm thinking of just a storyboard. Like, what's the blocking? What's the experience? What? How am I going to craft this experience that someone's going to engage? So yeah, they they do inform each other. So I think I have an example of that of something that I did here, which was we were creating we were we coming up with different ideas for new shows to create. And, um, we had a bunch and then we couldn't decide between like two of them. Like, we like, what, what do we think? The, well, and it's all guessing work. And I was like, actually, why don't we just create show art for both and put them up on our website and, and ask people? Yeah. You know, it was great. And, and one completely outdid the other. And that's what we did. It was a hit. And it was like, it cost us basically nothing, some design time just to do the artwork, but we didn't go into writing the script. And, the, but once we had a, like, this feels testable. And and got a good response. Create the show. That's kind of what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And actually, to I potentially build on that, I'm curious how that played out for you. But one thing that strikes me is you could put up two, three, four, whatever uh, options just to see how people respond and be okay with not having to to deliver the things you actually put up at the moment. Yeah. They might just be placeholders to inform, like, oh, it wasn't so much that someone wants to see this particular, I don't know, tragedy. They just didn't want to see a comedy. So yeah. great. That's, you know, we, we learned a bunch from, from trying out that thing. And you could then very quickly iterate another version. So if you've got whatever the one that stood out most in that case, you could try that same cycle. I don't know, the next day, next week. Okay. What are four versions of that? And, and now we're sort of navigating or honing in, you know, on, on something that, that you might spend more time. You might script, you might, I don't know, um, rally a cast and, and, you know, and get down to like how you're going to allocate resources in an informed way behind the idea you just tried or ex- explored. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you what the two were. Cause, uh, <laughs> so, uh, one was, uh, Second City doing a Christmas carol. So Second City's Christmas carol. And the, uh, the other was, uh, a mashup show called Death of a Streetcar Named Virginia Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, the second seed Christmas Carol by far was the more commercial. We did both. Um, uh, and, 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 uh, twi- it was called Twister Dickens second seed Christmas Carol. <laughs> that did very well for many years. Uh, Death of the Streetcar, which I still think is brilliant, you know, just had t- uh, two runs, uh, like three or four runs. Did, did for some reason didn't catch on. I still think it's a great idea. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, this is, it's, it's hard. It's hard because like, it, it less hard for us because second city has always just done original work. Yeah. We're, like the only commercial theater in America that's successful doing original work. And I think it's because we write it in front of audiences primarily uh, what we're doing. Um, I'm curious, you have a term, an idea called intentional blanks. Can you talk about what that, what that means? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I, I guess I'm always thinking of, uh, well, cartoons, um, but uh, storyboards. I think the yeah. as a tool, uh, graphic designers use them all the time, and mm-hmm. um, service designers, certainly artists, and um, I don't know all kinds of film production people. But intentional blanks. 
basically having templates uh, in a way that are ready to go. And, and I, I do mean it, it can be literally as tactile as like having storyboard, you know, eight and a half by 11 or 11 by 17 blank sheets of paper with grids or templates printed out, have a stack of them ready to go mm-hmm. or having a graphic file, um, like a PDF. The idea of having some kind of framework or template structure that you can reliably not have to invent each time. Like you don't have to spend your time right now drawing it out. You are just populating an existing intentional blank with a few ingredients or maybe a few prompts or a few hints um, in order to very quickly get to an artifact that you can use in service of an experience. Hmm. Uh, It might be, I mean, in, in a way it's, it's kind of similar. I'm thinking of a couple improv games, basically where you have like a prop and a certain amount of time. And that fuels inventing a scene or, or some glimpse, or perhaps you give someone a role and I don't know, three characteristics and they have to sort of manifest that in front of an audience. This is not dissimilar to that. It's, it's like, what are, what are some physical, visual and maybe verbal constraints? Um, that you routinely use as, as a way to engage someone in a quick experience. It's not dissimilar to like Mad Libs, the old game yeah. where you have like I, a blank. I was just thinking Mad Libs and there's an improv game called Playbook uh, and it's uh, you get a, a play and mm-hmm. one person reads the dialogue of a character from the play and the other person improvises. And that's an interesting kind of like, well, what's going to happen if they're not both improvising, but, you know, one person has that blank. Yeah, I love and like those what you just described of there's some some given starting content. Yeah. And what the outcome, or I should say an output then yielding outcomes, uh, is y- you have a scene. I think yeah. in the intentional blanks is that um very often the the form factor or the format that you're using, like a, a a five blank storyboard, you might not think of yourself as a a designer, you're not making a plot. You're not making a story. You're literally, it's, it could be as uh, totally outside the content of, of what you're trying to achieve. But, uh, by having that blank and by engaging someone with it, you've just made something. You've just like manifested some artifact that you can now talk about and you can refer back to. You can take a photograph of it and say like, Hey, last time we talked, you drew this. Or if you're like, I don't know, like map out your day. Uh, emotionally, like, and have someone sort of draw out. Um, I always think of a, <laughs> I just get these wrong too, but like Family Circus and Family Circle in my head are, are about the same, but Family Circus is a cartoon, yes. Family Circle, the magazine. Anyway, mm-hmm. Family Circus has that, uh, Bill Keen cartoon had that, um, quite famous, like, where did Billy go today? And it, and it's the little kid is like, I don't know, walking around the neighborhood, but he leaves like his little trail. Yeah. Um, I, that's that's the kind of thing where you're, where you're like, okay, map out, I don't know, your your day in terms of safety or map out the excitement you had last week. And literally, that could be an intentional blank of you give someone a gridded piece of paper with <laughs> like a few blanks of my most exciting moments were blank, draw it above. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just about having these these kind of reliable back pocket structures that you can always turn into something quickly. You're just, you're always ready to go with something. 
Uh, my wife, Anne, runs the first ever BA in comedy writing and performance major. Uh, it's a, t- a tenured professor of comedy. Um, so one of the things that she really works on with her students is uh, a, a writing practice. She's like, you know, there, there are everything's a hyphenate now in this business. You might be on, be on stage. You might be stand up. You might be improv. You might be in the writer's room, whatever. But you need to have a practice of creation. Mm. And so whether it's creating jokes and she's like, and she goes, here's some formats that you can just create jokes. They don't have to be good jokes, but you got to get in the habit of doing this like every single day and, and also have to recognize that the bulk of that stuff is just not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and you talk about this, um, teacher and I would butcher her name. I, I think it's, you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> I <laughs> suspect this- it's Verena Papka Jeltnes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which, so I, I explained what this teacher does and people lost their minds. They're like, <laughs> Oh my God. So can you explain what she does? This is about a, an exercise in hand rendering. Yeah. So, uh, Verena Papka Jeltnes, she's a professor at, uh, Iowa State University currently. She's an industrial designer. Uh, but she teaches, among other things, um, as you said, a, a course that involves um, contextualizing and learning how to hand render. So basically drawing mm, versions of product, but to a high degree and, and uh, with similar likeness, you know, to a photograph, the kind of thing where it's like, oh, wow, I can't, I can't even imagine drawing that well, where, you, where you're looking at sort of high art often. Um, in any case, she... She, she has this particular assignment that that builds with students have to come up with an idea um, based on some prompts. So they go through a, a couple of weeks of developing a concept as a product, getting excited about the idea itself and seeing it in their minds as as kind of a solution. Like, oh, this is going to be the best pair of inflatable athletic sneakers ever, or it's going to be the best, like, I don't know ocular speaker system that you, you know, whatever, inject into your head. Um, so I get excited about it. They're emotionally invested in the concept. And uh, I guess in, in building that emotional investment, they are practicing their their drawing and their rendering skills. So they'll, they'll make sketches, they'll make more refined sketches, more highly refined, add color, shading, all of it. Um, so that assignment basically culminates in a, a critique or presentation all the students in, in the class share their ideas and, and in a way kind of defend them as, as one might think of like, here's my idea. It's beautifully shown on the wall. Great. So everybody does that, you know, clap, clap, clap. Uh, and then as the, the sort of final culmination of that event, Verena asks all the students to basically take down their final, you know, beautiful, effectively art at this moment and tear it up like actively tear it up in front of each other. Like what they've just spent you know, sort of weeks uh, evolving and, and just committing to mm-hmm. uh, as uh, it's a, it's a bold move. I think, you it's know, it, it, it is, it is like, you know, students freak out about it. They get sure. uh, uh, upset, uh, which is, you know, obviously it's part of her intent and in saying, Hey, you're, you just got so emotionally connected to, and so, resource heavy into this as the single output, the single correctness of your work. When in fact, you're now so much more practiced at advancing iteratively or like trying something before you move on to a next step. You know, so it's, it's unpack. It's not just leaving them there to to feel terrified. It's, it's unpacking the, like, why did we just tear that stuff up? Why is that okay? Versus it being like, whoa, 
you know, you just, you just like knifed a bunch of paintings in, in a, you know, a museum and they're never coming back. Um, it's, it's all in service of saying, yeah, you did it. You did it once and you can absolutely do it again. That's part of becoming, you know, expert in sort of expert in yourself in a way and saying, like, I have confidence. I have faith in myself. I'm practiced. I can absolutely do this again, whether someone tears it up or not. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> You also then are, are a little bit more prepared too, candidly. I think I, I, I would actually have never done this. I would love to ask any of her students in the back of their mind. I'm confident that from that point on in their life, I don't think they ever draw anything without thinking like, is someone going to tear this up? Is this, yeah. is this, is this going to be like, it, uh, I, I just painted something. Is it, is it, uh, is part of this well, going to be like to destroy it? And and I, I have to I gotta ask this too because again, my wife's a teacher, you teach, right? <laughs> yeah. Like generationally, this feels like this would go down way worse with the kids who are taking classes now. Don't you think? Uh yes, I do. Yes. Uh and <laughs> I, I, I love these kids. I love them so much, but I mean, it is, and for, for many good reasons and maybe some that are not so good, but you know, they're forced to be inside for two years, among other things. But wow. It, it, because I do feel a missing skill set. And I'm hearing this from our clients. We work with mm-hmm. a lot of fortune mm-hmm. thousand companies is, uh, people who are so, um, uh, worried about risk and, and failure. Um, and, uh, and also, um, belonging mm. and, and other things that, that they're, they're sort of triggered by, by almost anything and things escalate. Like, it's like, no, no, no. Like being uncomfortable mm. is the act of learning. And, you know, and there's a difference between a safe space and a disagreement or a discomfort, but that the level of nuance it takes to navigate that at the university level feels like a minefield. And this is like, my friends at Stanford, my friends at Harvard, my friends at University of Chicago, like everyone's talking about those. I think the, um, something that I maybe was unfortunately permitted in the past or mm-hmm. someone just, just got like a, uh, a hand wave was, um, let me say like the lack of emotional support in service of some learning experiences, like in that, in that, that case that we mentioned, you know, of like tearing up drawings, I think, you know, you could see that as being a bit of a movie moment in a way. And, and like some storied old professor like, Oh, he does it. Yeah. That kind of thing. And you get like, Oh, and all the students go off and cry to themselves and then have to resolve. And, 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 and in, in a, in one way you could say like, well, that's, that's how students have to learn. Like, I think that's also kind of garbage too. Uh, that is, um, it is increasingly, I think, more important and more expected that when students have experiences, or rather when you design experiences for students, that you are also designing in time and or, or process or phase, whatever, to support the why did we just do what we did? Yeah. Which in in I would offer up in a lot of past cases was never <laughs> intended no. to, to be unpacked or, or for someone to right. um, come I back to so. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, this is how it is. And this is how you'll learn. It'll take you 40 years and a bunch of therapy to figure out like what you actually took away from that. And I don't want to spend 
you know, one week out of my semester lesson plan to account for uh, unpacking my, my motivations. You can't question me. So um, I do think, and I'm quite excited about student energy and student interest in uh, I think getting deeper into their motivations uh, and, and kind of understanding, I don't know, nuances of process or, uh, their connection to their work or what their connection could be um, versus a, a maybe a more formulaic past where it's you're a designer or you're a business student, you make a business idea, it must be successful, go on. Not like, why did you want to make a business or what was it exciting? What was exciting to you about that? Um, yeah. I have a friend named Joe Mellon who is He's now kind of an intrapreneur, I guess, um, if you want to mm. think about it that way. He works for Microsoft currently, but has started a number and number of businesses, startups. Many have actually failed. Many have had great success. Um, but he, he <laughs> this isn't private information. I just, I've had many conversations with him about it, though. But he loves transactions. He okay. loves the, just the structure of a transaction. It could be anything like uh, I'm going to ask you to tell me a joke. You tell me a yeah. joke. That was a transaction. Why did, like, why did that work? Just that down to, uh, you know, what's the easiest way to make a cashless payment. So that kind of, um, uh, notion of a, of a transaction, but there's something that he is so aware of that nuance of what he loves, uh, about, well, transactions in the, in a business context or not in a business context that it, it makes it from afar, it almost makes it look super easy for him to say, Oh yeah, I'm going to invent a business right away because he knows sort of exactly what, what he's excited about or, 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 or more of the nuances within like a big idea. I think that's something that sometimes doesn't come across for a number of reasons in student education where it's like, we have to have a product by the end of the semester or we have to have, we have to teach yeah. the test, so to speak. And you're like, yep, we landed it, but not a person knows why they were excited about the work they did over the semester or the course. And, and I, well, you're, you're yeah. making me think that one of the things we might be missing is building prototypes for the classroom with regard to these outcomes that we want and the <laughs> feelings that are going to come up. We do I don't think we do that very often. I, yeah, I, I in in a way, it's strange. What you just described is, I find that if someone approached that, um, I would say if they approached a challenge with the feeling of agency, that they could change things, or they had control, or they had just some options where where they might be coming from. I don't know if it's technically a deficit mindset, but are coming at it from like at least a punitive <laughs> uh, repercussions, like. If this isn't right, I'm going to be in trouble. If this isn't right, my students are, you know, right. uh, at a loss and they're going to be behind and we're already behind. There's, you know, there's always this like doom, which is in some cases fair. In other cases is, is hype. Um, but the, I think where, when and where teachers find agency and feel like they have room to play, it is so immediately apparent that what they're doing is is like some, just like uh, uh, um, 
like a stand-in for a prototyping process. It, it's it's like just another name for it. And I think it was it was one of the things that was most striking to me early in in well, you know, writing this book or even just talking to other designers around the word prototype and prototyping. Seemingly, they all know the same process and they're all working through the same vocabulary and, and the same steps. But in reality, actually, there, there were some really significant differences where you'd say, like, hey, we're just going to go prototype something. And for some, you know, designers or some practitioners, that word meant something totally different personally than it did to, you know, their peers or their colleagues. And I was really struck by that and saying, like, wow, all the, you know, here we are supposedly speaking the same language, but in fact, we're, we're using, you know, the same word totally differently. And as a result, the outcomes can be problematic. Uh, You know, there were, there were some instances of, of, um, I was quite interested in talking to some people who work in, uh, very high accountability technology positions, like life safety issues in the airline industry where it's like, yeah, you, you can't have a f- back to failure. You can't have a failure in this case because a whole bunch of people die. Yep. Um, so a prototype in that regard, uh, might feel totally off if you come in with something that's not built, machined, intentional, looks like s- some, close proximity to what a final product might be. And you, you can't walk in and say, Hey, here's some cardboard versions of things I tried. And is everybody loving this? While that might work for, uh, I, I don't know, uh, a product development, I don't know, consultancy that, that works with kids toys. And you're like, great, yeah. let's have lots of versions of things. Okay, cool. Um, any case, the, the, the terminology really made a difference. And back to the bringing this back to, you know, the, prototyping in the classroom or prototyping actual classrooms. It's so interesting to watch particularly class, um, uh, like elementary school daily classroom teachers who have who like are in their domain. They're accountable. They're going to be in the room for a long time. They so quickly try something out and say, Oh, that's not working. Let's, you know, let's, let's change it. Let's switch it up. And when they have control, uh, they dive much more into, uh, at least observationally, they dive much more into uh, an iterative and, and evolutionary process of let's get towards something that works as opposed to saying, no, we must retain this sort of classroom structure for a semester. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting about that. I've just finished reading uh, Jeff Cohen's book, uh, Belonging, Stanford professor, mm-hmm. uh, all on the importance of belonging, hugely important. And, and a lot of it about school and basically says, if you think about it, around age 12, we, we forget that kids need like connection and belonging and these other things, that sense of play that, that is afforded to, especially like it, it basically, it just starts to get less and less and less the farther you go into your, into your training. And it's like, it didn't stop being important. <laughs> it, it's, it's about humans and how humans are. I love that it like it didn't stop being important. It might have just stopped being implemented. Like the idea that you walk into a room and and you feel belonging and you feel like that's my place, that's my, my home base, so to speak. If it's not evident, right? It, it's not evident. You know, it's not evident. <laughs> it, it, yeah, you need to connect somehow. That you know, like why your work is on the wall and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. but yeah, that doesn't as, as you point out, that doesn't go away. That that persists, uh, but doesn't get attention persistently. But no, but just, in high school. 
like they they you know, the bell ringing they don't want you talking in the hallways to your friends or give you that time you're like what are you doing no especially teens have you met a teen don't do this to them <laughs> i don't know how we got on this all right <laughs> have you met a teen i love that just as like a t-shirt like hey <laughs> i mean i have kids it's like that's a that's those are hard years they were hard for me all right in a moment i'm going to ask you for a yes answer story but before we do that I was really intrigued by the story you talk about these Carnegie Mellon students mm. redesigning a fire ex- extinguisher. And just I would talk about that because it was really interesting to me. That was a story uh, that captivated me. I'd read about that story and then read more about that story and, and wanted to share it. It's one of those like, hey, have you heard um, that you just want to share? And there was something that... Again, an introductory class experience where design students are tasked with redesigning a fire extinguisher, like a home a home use fire extinguisher, and it's just exactly the kind of I don't know pivotal moment um, where students anybody is saying like here redesign this and their inclination is like make a better version of the one that already exists. And very often that kind of experience then leads to uh, rebranding. Uh, we, we changed the, uh, some mechanisms to make it easier to use, or we changed some, some graphic design. So like the steps of a sequence are, are um, technically clearer to read and, and so forth. So you, you get down to, in some cases, a lot of really valid uh, graphic design and product design motivations in how to make a product better. However, that is also dangerously absent of any talk or exploration of what does it mean to use that thing? What? How does a fire extinguisher get used? Why does it get used? Who uses it? Another, who doesn't use a fire extinguisher in the context of a fire? Yeah. So you've got this thing of like, like, oh, a fire extinguisher will put out fires. When's the last time you had a fire extinguisher when you were near a fire that was getting out of control? Okay. So maybe a better fire extinguisher is one that's available as opposed to one that um, has, I don't know, a a clearer font (laughs) on its instructions. So in any case, these, these students as in a really awesome, sequence of events uh they led with that question of what is it like for someone to use a fire extinguisher what happens when someone does it and from an outside view it strikes me that they paused what must have been really difficult momentum to pause which is i want to get to the solution they dove right into this phase of we don't have to have an answer right now. We're going to do something. We're going to create an experience. This is absolutely the the <laughs> fake it, but do it for real. Mm-hmm. Uh, back from the make with a mindset. Um, they started some controlled fires, asked someone to put out the fire using a fire extinguisher. And they watched, you know, how, how does it happen? And you get these almost comically obvious uh, observations that happen like, you know, no one read the instructions that were printed on the yeah. side of the extinguisher and no one, you know, pulled the pin and safely put it over on a countertop or there are all these things that are that are 
vital to the function of the designed device, but are totally irrelevant if someone is not using the designed device as designed. Um, And so that completely changed their um, approach in saying, okay, if we're going to be designing a new sort of fire extinguisher, what are the behaviors that we noticed? What are some of the things that people did? And let's start with those as kind of the the core of our concepts, as opposed to let's accept that fire extinguishers are correct currently and let's mm, like tweak them. So they're more ergonomic or, or it's more about um, sort of like, I don't know, just coming up with like a paradigm shift as opposed to like a different polish or veneer on an existing concept. I love it. I love it because it's one of those things. It's funny because it's true. Like I don't know how to use a fire extinguisher. I don't want to. I completely, I remember vividly as a, as a, kid and there was a fire in the kitchen in the house that i grew up in and there there happened to be a fire extinguisher sort of mounted um in a closet kind of adjacent to the kitchen on a little bracket and you got that you pull the pin and all that i'd seen it in my peripheral vision you know for years in any case (laughs) oven was on fire my my mom was in the kitchen and she just ripped the fire extinguisher bracket and all like off the stud. And then, then I don't know, somehow actuated the fire extinguisher. But in, in the after of all that, if you looked at the fire extinguisher that was being used, there was this huge patch of drywall and wood attached to, you know, oh, to the right. bracket. There wasn't like whoever designed the bracket, uh, you know, for the thing to rest on there. It was, I don't know. I don't think they were intending for someone to rip the wall off and no, use the whole no. thing to put the fire out. So, you know, I best probably not. Probably not the the intended use. Yeah. All right. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yes, I have a yes and story. Great. I didn't recognize this as a yes and story at the time. It predates okay. my familiarity with that term, but yep. it has aligned for, I guess, almost a decade and a half now. I was in New York City um, at the time. I was working as an engineer and... I was coming to the end of like a seminar, like a three-day conference seminar situation, um, sort of long days, that kind of thing, and came to the end of it. I was there with a colleague of mine um, who's Peruvian, um, and we were, at the end of this third day, we were going to go meet for dinner another uh, friend of ours who had moved to New York uh, separately, whatever. Um, we're going to go meet uh, her for dinner and a bunch of friends. She was also, she had lived in Peru. She's not Peruvian. She was, she lived in Peru and she, I, I think her husband was also Peruvian. Uh, in any case, we're going to uh, some, you know, one of the like fabled, oh, it's the best, it's the best cafe. It's this like hideaway place. The food is incredible. It's like difficult to get into. It's, generations of people serving the food you know like the the grandmother is there the 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 daughter and everybody the whole family thing and anyway it sounded cool um i never really had peruvian food in in my head or i mean like it's literally in my head in, in mindfully I, 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 yeah. I was like i don't think i've had this before and i know all of these other people who had such deep connections to Peru and the cuisine were so excited. They were like, you know, really ready to get at it. And at the end of the day, 
we got to this place and this is, um, there were two things at play. One was I was borderline sort of hangry, like in the, I hadn't eaten anything almost all day. Uh And it was right at that moment where you're like, I just want to eat something, anything, uh, I need it to happen quickly. Um, and then there was another instance of like, Ooh, in some cases I'm a little bit of a picky eater. And, and it was, it was kind of the moment where I, I might be like, yeah, I don't really, it's not that I don't like seafood. It's that I I might just not want to commit to your seafood decisions and, and that sort of thing. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't know why, uh, I, I decided to say, you know what, forget that I'm all in. Let's, you all know all of these options way better than I do. I can, I can feel and see that you were excited and, and have, you know, enthusiasm for what we're about to eat and do. Uh, so that was it. I was like, you know what, Scott, in like inner monologue, just yeah. shut up, you know, <laughs> whatever shows up, you're going to love it. It's going to be something unique, whatever. Uh, and it, it was immediate after that. I don't think they were sensing resistance from me particularly, but uh, their enthusiasm in trying things like built my own enthusiasm. Like, oh, I'd love to try this, or just, who could recommend something like this, or oh, that was really good. Let's get another version of that. And it it, it had this sort of amplifying, cascading um, effect, such that n- no one, when they were throwing out an idea, back to the sort of yes and motivation, like no one was worried about anyone else saying, no, 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 no. I I don't want to try that. It was like, yes, let's get that. Let's all dive into it. What did everyone think? And what would be our next, you know, that, Oh, okay, let's get another one of those. Or we didn't try anything like that yet. Let's go there. Um, Which in the context of food and group food situations is over years has really helped me (laughs) uh, just go into like mindfully go into some situations saying i'm absolutely excited about what's going to happen here i'm not going to like block this i'm not going to pause it it's going to be part of the magic of of what happens here by by saying yes to this uh and on the flip side there are instances where i do pay more attention now to no <laughs> like what what are the rules or or when when am i not um yeah there's a place for no yeah when am, when am i committed to this like uh versus sort of pretending i'm i'm accepting the rules and i I think that um there's some value there's there's value in the same way of like brainstorming has you know some structure to it like some actual structure to it there are rules you know it's not just anything counts or you know go great wonderful it's all super fun it's there's there's intentionality and there's some there's some scripts uh that if you accept wow it can be just awesome we went uh, to this Greek place, a modern Greek place, and they deboned a fish at our table, which was really great. We're eating it. And they're like, do you want to eat the head? And I'm like, no, I do, I do not. I do not. Um, and But also, I love omakase, you know, sushi. Get, yeah, like, yeah. Just the chef, bring me the stuff they're making. That, 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 that to me is exciting. But I... But I, like, I've, I've done it, and I know... And I imagine... So, the meal was good? The Peruvian meal? It was... It was awesome. And, yeah. it, you know, like, all the varied uh variants of like ceviche that happened i ate beef part mm. for the first time which was yeah. delicious i don't know that i want to do that again but it was absolutely delicious i never would have picked that off of a menu yeah. in- instinctively or intuitively mm-hmm. i love that 
I had that experience. I've subsequently tried to find that place again. I can't like it's Brigadoon. It's just gone, you know, somehow. I don't know if it's going to come back, whatever, but yeah, it was, uh, (laughs) maybe it didn't, you know, uh, I love it. The book is called, this is a prototype, the curious craft of exploring new ideas. Scott Whitoff, Thanks for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly. It was super cool to be with you. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Music.